In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as always. Whenever we begin to pray, we should think, first of all, of you as our Lord and our God, and ask for the time and the recollection of worshiping you in whatever way comes to mind, but mostly, of course, always in accordance with your most holy will. So help us to open our minds and hearts as we listen and hear uh, what Isaiah has to say to us uh, then and now, uh, because Scripture is a living organism and it has meaning all the time, different at different times, but nevertheless, always in accordance with your honor and glory. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. This morning I'd like to do something that I don't do quite often, but because the scriptures that we're going to be talking about this morning are probably the most sacred and the most sublime uh, passages of the Old Testament. Uh, And interestingly enough, these are the ones that the Jewish people most frequently avoid. Partly because they are uh, reflections on their own somewhat... uh, sorrowful past, but for Christians, they are a reflection of what is to come. And so, as I've said many times, the Bible is written on both an earthly level and on a spiritual level. So what I'd like to do is to go through chapter 52 uh, 52 and 53 um, on the earthly level first meaning that explaining how Isaiah meant it to to the people of his time, to the people to whom he was writing uh, this to. And then go through it as we Christians look at it today. You'll see some interesting differences, but I think both apply. And scripture always should be writ, uh, read and understood in both levels, earthly level and the spiritual level. Not so much the New Testament, because that is written for the people of its time as well as today. Um, and it is written in a totally different frame of mind. Oh, the Old Testament was probably written, uh, as I've said before, as history. The older, the, the oldest books, that is, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were written originally as Jewish history. They did not become sacred scripture until much later, as if they were used to guide and direct future generations who then kind of uh, took them into consideration as sacred scripture. Uh, But originally they were written as history. 
the New Testament was written as instruction. Of course, a lot of it was written uh, in a historical sense, particularly the Gospels, because they wanted people to understand who Jesus was and what he taught. But we interpret that as uh, the history of Jesus' life for at least the last uh, three years or so. But the remaining part of the New Testament is written as instruction. Collectively, if we look at them uh, as guides to our approach to God through Jesus Christ, then they become sacred scripture. Remember, as I've said uh, many times before, and some of the dear sisters, uh, Sister Mary Agnes, who is my favorite, she would gasp if I said that this is just a book with words. It does not become sacred scripture or the word of God until we pick it up and live it. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. I, uh, one time I was uh, putting books together just as I do here and I was doing this and she came, my dear sister Mary Agnes came along and pulled the Bible out from under the rest of the pack and she said the Bible should never be covered up with something else that is the word of God I thought oh yeah sure (laughs) but the word of God is only when you pick it up and live it okay all right. Any questions before we begin? All right. Let's begin um, with chapter 52. And I want to go back just a wee bit. Um, well, no, we can start at chapter 52. The suffering servant and triumph the suffering and triumph of the servant of the Lord. All right. Now, we're going to read this as Isaiah meant it to reflect to his people. All right. The servant is whom? The Jewish people, yes, yes. Not only those from Jerusalem, but all of Judea. All right. So, it would be the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the people from Jerusalem, the people from Judah, all right, from Zion. Now, remember, Zion is not a place. It is um, sort of a, uh, as it is used here in the Old Testament, Zion is sort of like what we would say about um, New York City. It's often called the Big Apple. Or New Orleans is called uh, the Big Easy. Those are sort of affectionate ideas or concepts of a whole place, not necessarily just the city itself. And so you have various kind of uh, comfortable names for different locations. That's what Zion meant at the time. 
Today, Zion is entirely different. Uh, Zion and Zionism is more of a nationalistic political movement. All right. But at the time of Christ and uh, earlier, Zion was sort of an affection uh, for the whole concept of what Jerusalem uh, meant for God, uh, to God. All right. So, let's begin. See, my servant shall prosper. That is, the Jewish people should prosper, <coughs> shall prosper. And this is, of course, Isaiah sort of prophesying to his people because now at this particular time in this book, the people have returned or began to return to the area of Judah. All right. They didn't all come back at one time. It was various increments uh, of people, various caravans, you might say, left Babylon and returned to the area around Jerusalem, which is the province of Judah. Even as many were amazed at him, or amazed at the servant, so marred were his features beyond that of mortals. The city was destroyed. The temple was gone. The area was desolated because those people who were left there, the elderly, the infirm, and little children, could not carry on the industries that were there. And therefore, the city practically died. And that is what is being referred to here. So marred were his features beyond that of mortals, his appearance beyond that of human beings. So he startled many nations. But kings shall stand speechless, for those who have not been told shall see, and those who have not heard shall ponder it. And that is because the idea of a conqueror in this case, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus the Persian, releasing conquered people who had been taken from their homeland and brought into the area of the conquered's homeland, now being allowed to return, and not only just return, but given back many of the spoils that were taken and assistance to help them rebuild, that had never been done before. And that was entirely new. And that is what it is referred to here or meant by kings shall stand speechless. That is, kings of these other pagan nations. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him. That is, Jerusalem and Judah and Judaism grew up like a sapling before God. Like a shoot from the parched earth, virtually out of nothing except what God wanted it to be. I'm adding all of these extra words. Hopefully, they will help you to understand. 
he had no uh, majestic bearing to catch our eye. In other words, Jerusalem wasn't much of anything until uh, King David made it uh, sort of his capital, okay? And so it was nothing up until that time, and for centuries after, uh, it was not much in the way of importance to other nations. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw him to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering and knowing pain. The other nations avoided Jerusalem and avoided Judah because they were nothing of importance. Now, that would sound like a little contradiction when we talked about the prosperity that was there at the time of King Solomon and afterwards. Yes, there was a lot of prosperity, but it was not of greater prosperity than the surrounding nations. It was not greater than them or important to these other people. Okay. I have to apologize for the delay here. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering and knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face and spurn, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured, Ours, in this case, are the Jewish people themselves looking at what has been accomplished. Our suffering he endured, and it is the sins of all the people of the surrounding area, because that is what got them into Babylon in the first place. He was pierced for our sins and crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole, but by his wounds we were healed. It's interesting that this particular passage from chapter 52, verse 13, through through chapter 53, verse 12, is probably the most sacred of all the scriptures of the Old Testament as far as Christians are concerned, not Jewish people, but as far as Christians are concerned. Unfortunately, what they do, though, is they have taken this and applied it solely to Jesus and forgot what it originally meant. That last line, by his wounds we were healed, it is repeated in the New Testament three or four times, one in particular by St. Peter in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 24. Going on, we had all gone astray like sheep. Yes, all the Jewish people had gone astray like a sheep, all following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him, that is Judaism, the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted 
and did not open his mouth. It's hard to kind of imagine in a way he's talking about himself, his, the Jewish people, and Judaism as both victim and victor. Like a lamb led to a slaughter, or a sheep silent before shears, he did not open his mouth. He couldn't, because it was his own problem. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. Taken away to Babylon. Taken away to Assyria. And who would have thought any more of his destiny? Because no one really cared. For he was cut off from the land of the living and struck for the sins of his people. He was given a a grave among the wicked and a burial place with evildoers. Though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Well, that's going a little bit too far, I think. Remember, the message is from God, but the words are from a human being. And this particular Isaiah, Isaiah 2, uh, was, I think, extravagant with some of the positive side. Though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth, but it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain. The Lord had to punish the Jewish people to get their attention. This wasn't the first time that they had to go through some punishment. They've done that over and over in order to really get their attention. But it did not work for long. Yes. Yes. Yes, and we'll come to that a little in a few minutes. Okay? But making his life as a reparation offering He shall see his offspring and shall lengthen his days. And the Lord's will shall be accomplished through him. That is, God's plan of salvation will be accomplished through the remnant that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that, of course, was the whole purpose. The whole idea of bringing these people back from Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem to re, uh, reunite, um, and rejuvenate the whole idea of Judaism. Yes. The people. Yes. 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 Yeah, because the people who were left there could really do no good. It took the younger people, the more invigorating people, who had a cause now to come back and start things over. Because they were now somewhat free. Not entirely, but somewhat free. Because of his anguish, he shall see the light. Because of his 
knowledge, he shall be content. Well, we hope so, but uh, not unfortunately for long. My servant, the just one, shall justify the many. Their iniquity he shall bear. And therefore I will give him his portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty. Because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among transgressors before the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. You have to look at this in another way. Though this was written by a man or human being, God really was inspiring this person to write his reflection on the whole idea and concept of the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. But at the same time, you have to take into consideration that that inspiration by God through this individual had to also reflect on the final outcome or the climax, you might say, of God's plan of salvation, which applies, of course, and could only be filled by Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back and start from the beginning and see how this applies to Jesus Christ. One forty one. Yes. Now, as June pointed out, this will be the liturgy of the first reading on the liturgy of Good Friday. There are several readings, but this is the first one and probably the longest one on Good Friday, the afternoon service. All right. Because Jesus was the primary servant of God to effect his plan of salvation to all mankind. Okay. Now, so in this case, my servant applies to Christ. I'm reading this from the spiritual point of view. See, my servant shall prosper. Well, how should he prosper? Well, later on, as we all know, uh, the resurrection is the prosper. He shall be raised high and greatly exalted. He shall be raised high, that is, raised on the cross. And exalted, but not at the time. Exalted, yes, later on, when people began to realize what Christ's crucifixion on the cross really meant. He was paying the price for the sins of all mankind. Even as many were amazed at him, so marred were his, his features beyond that of mortals. His appearance beyond that of human beings. Well, if any of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, a lot of people said, well, they didn't like that because in their minds, they think of Christ like he just came out of a, sho- of a shower 
rather than being spit upon and beaten and nailed to a cross and crowned with thorns and the blood and, you know, everything that was thrown at him on the day of crucifixion, he's not going to be up there on the cross like he just came out of a shower. Obviously, he's going to be filthy, bloody, scarred, and ugly. But people don't want to see that on their crosses. They want nice, clean images. All right. Uh, and that's what this means here. So marred were his features beyond that of mortals, his appearance beyond that of human beings. So shall he startle many nations, and kings shall stand speechless. Kings later on, realizing what they did, stood speechless. Some of them didn't care. But some of them were still uh, unable to really voice uh, and put it into words. For those who have not been told shall see, and those who have not heard shall ponder it. This is referring to people that Jesus never got to as far as preaching and teaching, but that came later through the apostles. You would believe Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you think about the story of the two men uh, on the road to Emmaus, how they became amazed uh, in a way that this stranger who kind of joined them on the road uh, began to explain the scriptures to them. And it wasn't until they sat Uh, down for a meal and the breaking of the bread that they realize who this was. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him. He, meaning Christ, grew up like a sapling before God the Father, like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. In other words, he was just another human being as he grew up from the time of birth to the time of the baptism. He was just another young man um, who probably took over his father's business as a carpenter, supported his mother as a good Jewish boy would do, And so he was normal. He was average. Nothing special. uh, But it was not until later that people finally realized who and what he was. He was spurned and avoided by men. A man of suffering and knowing pain. This is the passion now of Christ. And like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. In other words, if you saw him being beaten and scourged and crowned with thorns, uh, and all of the mockery and so forth that he went through, you would kind of turn in disgust, really. The average person would. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and one I still 
really remember in, in a special way was how his mother, she didn't rant and rave and get hysterical as most mothers would. She stood by with dignity. She was very concerned. She ran after him as he was carrying the cross down the Via Della Rosa. And when he fell, she came to him as best she could because she was pushed away. But there was dignity there. That was very touching, I thought. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings that he endured, sufferings beyond reason, beyond the ability for the average human being to endure. We thought of him, thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins. Pierced. Hands, feet, side, including or in addition to the head wounds of the crown. But he was pierced for our sins and crushed for our iniquity. He bore all of this as a reparation, as a magnificent sacrifice, a reparation for all of our sins, things that we could never do. And by his wounds, we were healed spiritually. So you see, the words here uh, can apply uh, both figuratively and spiritually to the Jewish people originally, but to the Christians more specifically. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, or a sheep silent before shears, he did not open his mouth. Remember when Pilate questioned him, are you a king? And Jesus refused to answer and just remain silent. Why boast? Pilate wouldn't believe them anyways. And even if he said, yes, I am a king, the king of heaven and earth, that would have gotten him into more trouble. So he remained silent. It was almost like telling Pilate, it's none of your business. You wouldn't believe me anyways. Seized and condemned, he was taken away. And who would have thought any more of his destiny? If he had died and not risen later, would we today be worshiping him, building cathedrals, and doing so much more, studying this, for example? Okay. For he was cut off from the land of the living and struck for the sins of his people, all of his people, all people. He was given a grave among the wicked, a burial place with evildoers. And though he had done no wrong, nor was deceit found in his mouth, but it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain. It was 
God's will that he send himself in the form of Jesus Christ to be the sacrificial lamb offered for the sins of all mankind. And therefore, it's as it says here, but it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain by making his life as a reparation offering. He shall see his offspring, shall lengthen his days, and the Lord's will shall be accomplished through him. The Lord's plan of salvation shall be accomplished through him. Because of his anguish, he shall see the light. Because of his knowledge, he shall be content. My servant, the just one, shall justify many, and their iniquity he shall bear. Therefore, I will give him his portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty. Remember, God the Father has put Jesus in charge of the final judgment of all mankind. Because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among transgressors, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. I, I think this is one of the most powerful portions of the Old Testament. Dick? If there was ever any doubt that our Bible was inspired by God, this proves that we take written history for the Jews and it applies so obviously to Christ. Yes, yes, very much so. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to digress for just a moment and pick up on what Dick said and go to chapter, I mean to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is very similar to the passage I just read from Isaiah. It is not exactly the same type of thing, but it has a double meaning, an earthly meaning and a spiritual meaning. But let's go through briefly, because we will also hear this on Holy Saturday, uh, Holy, no, Good Friday. We will hear this psalm repeated uh, in part and in total uh, a couple of times. All right. It is the words that Christ cried out from the cross. It is one of the what we call the seven last words. All right. But it has another meaning as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're all familiar with that phrase, right? Well, I, uh, I'll read it in part, and then I want to come back and explain some of it, okay? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
far from my prayer, from the words of my cry. Oh my God, I cry out and you answer not. By night and there is no relief for me. And yet you are enthroned in the holy place, O glory of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they escaped. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. The scorn of men despised by the people. All who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips. They wag their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. That is what was said by some of the people at the foot of the cross of Christ. In other words, you know, he's up there. He worked miracles for other people. Why didn't he work a miracle for himself and come down? That's what it says here. You have been my guide since I was first formed. My security in my mother's breast. To you I was committed at birth. From my mother's womb, you are my God. In other words, the whole purpose of his life was to serve God. Be not far from me, for I am in distress. Be near, for I have none to help me. Many bullocks surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me like ravening and roaring lions. I am like water poured out. All my bones are racked. My heart has become like wax melting away within my bosom. My throat is dried up like baked clay. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. To the dust of death you have brought me. This is what Christ must have thought when he was on the cross, dying of thirst, as well as exhaustion and lack of of being able to breathe. Remember, hanging from your arms like that puts weight and crush on the lungs. And according to medical (coughs) diagnoses, Christ died more out of uh, from asphyxiation than from the pain and the loss of blood because of the weight of the body against the lungs. Indeed, many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in upon me. That is the Roman soldiers. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. How clear can you get them back? They look on and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. Didn't the soldiers do that? But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my God, help me. Hasten to me. Rescue my soul from the sword, my loneliness from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild bulls, my wretched life. Didn't he pray in the garden of of, uh, Gethsemane? Uh, Father, if it be your will, 
you know, take this away from me. He was human. He was human, knowing that he was going to suffer the most horrible death imaginable. Now, part B, I don't know if your Bibles will divide this, but part A is what we just read. Part B is really the victory song, the song that Jesus could have and probably did recite after the resurrection, okay? I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And that's what we should all do, even when we are suffering, uh, whether it be physical or emotional or mental uh, suffering. Uh, we should still praise God because there is a reason, a purpose for suffering. We may not always understand it, but if we pray, asking God to help us understand as much as we can or explain it to us. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, give glory to him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not spurned nor disdained the wretched man in his misery. Nor did he turn his face away from him. But when he cried out, the Lord heard him. So, by your gift will I utter praise to the vast assembly. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear him. The lowly shall eat their fill, and they who seek the Lord shall praise him. May your hearts be ever merry. (coughs) I won't go on because we've covered most of this. But you can see how this psalm reflects the idea of the crucifixion but it also applies to the suffering of the Jewish people after they've returned from Babylon. The same idea applies in an earthly sense, um, and this applies to Christ in a spiritual sense. Yes. Uh, yeah, Susan's comment here is that this psalm, uh, if it were applied to David, is a little bit uh, over the top, so to speak. All right. I've got to explain that in... Centuries ago, most of the Psalms were attributed to David. We have found out that that is not correct. All right. David may have inspired some, but that doesn't mean he wrote them. Many of them were reflections that came much later after there was a greater understanding of what David put forth. Let me give you uh, uh, somewhat of a prime example. If you go to Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is one of the great penitential psalms, and it is 
to me uh, one of the greatest acts of contrition that a person can make. <clears throat> this is a reflection, a theological reflection on the problems and the suffering and the guilt that David um, experienced particularly after his um, association with Bathsheba, all right? And it would uh, sound natural that David might pray this. But when you get down to the end of it, that falls apart. I won't go through the whole psalm, <coughs> But the end of it, it says, uh, Be bountiful, O Lord, to Zion in your kindness by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with due sacrifices, burnt offerings and holocausts. Then shall they offer up bullocks on your altar. Well, if David wrote this, the walls of Jerusalem had not been destroyed they were not even totally built yet. So David couldn't have written this and put that in there with any degree of meaning because the walls had not been destroyed. How could you rebuild something that hadn't been fully built yet? Those were not built until Solomon's time. There were walls, but not these walls. And there are many other understandings and little uh, tips. That's <laughs> the only word I can think of offhand that explain how the Psalms were not all written by King David. Okay, they may have been inspired by many of the things he did, just like the Book of Deuteronomy. Uh, is written as if it was all written by Moses, and it wasn't. And there are many uh, passages in there that uh, refer to certain things that Moses had no knowledge of because they didn't happen until long afterwards. All right. But in Jewish writings of this time period, the Old Testament time period, if an individual, a total individual, wrote one of the most glorious uh, pieces of literature, whether it be Psalms or history or whatever, but he had no name or following or no importance, he would attach it to somebody who was important just to get it published okay? or just to get it uh, accepted or understood by general public. And so the real authors of the books of the, well, almost the entire Bible are not always written by the people to whom they are given credit for. So are you beginning to get the idea here? I hope. Okay. Unfortunately, the Jewish people didn't get get it. Isaiah is in your Bible. 
yes. In it's fact, ignored. it's ignored in many cases. <laughs> in fact, um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 19, beginning in 1947, 1947, you know, our time, or at least my time, um, the book of Isaiah, as we have it today, 66 chapters, no chapters and verses in that edition, though, was the only book that was discovered in total. The rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls were only bits and pieces of the Old Testament and a lot of other things, nothing from the New Testament. Okay. Uh, there was a, a total library, you might say, within all of these books. They were discovered over a period of time. That's why I say beginning in 1947. It was, uh, most of those books now, the originals, and I've seen them, uh, are in a museum called the Museum of the Book in Jerusalem. Okay? Isaiah is the one that is least understood and read by the Jewish people because it reflects negatively on their past. They rarely, rarely ever mention Babylon. Again, because of the reasons what got them there in the first place. They look to the um, exodus from Egypt at the time of Moses, as the greatest event in their life. Unfortunately, they ignore many of the others that had greater importance. I feel personally that the exodus from Babylon was far more important to the Jewish people and Judaism in general because it was or what came out of that was the basis for modern Judaism, and that is the attention to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, prior to that, Deuteronomy was not accepted uh, because it was too harsh uh, and it was too negative in, the, in their understanding, and they didn't want any part of that. It was like what most of the prophets had to say was not accepted by their own people and most of the prophets uh, were murdered by the Jewish people because they didn't like what they had to say. And of course the, John the Baptist who is, was not one of the literary prophets uh, but he's also often referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets was murdered by his own people. Okay. And, of course, Jesus himself, who was the greatest of all the prophets, uh, was also murdered by their own people. Murdered, executed, whatever you want to call it. It's the same thing. Any other questions? All right. Let, let us co uh, continue. Uh, pretty much so, yes. Yes. And the reasons behind them are a little uh, questionable. Yes. 
it's unfortunate. Uh, and Anna just mentioned that the Jewish people today even are kind of pick and choose out of the scriptures what they want to believe in and uh, what they celebrate. And it's unfortunate. But don't put them down. Because remember, the basis for our faith came from Judaism. What we should do is pray for the Jewish people to to have a change of heart and mind. Um, Because they have missed out on so beautiful um, a faith and a belief system and the glories that come with it. So we should really pray for the Jewish people. And on Holy Saturday evening, in that liturgy, uh, one of the comments is praying for the Jewish people. Okay. All right. Uh, chapter 54. As the people came back, they were, you know, they were singing and they were dancing and Oh, so joyous to be back. But when they began to realize that they had to kind of start all over again. The city was gone. The infrastructure was gone. The temple was gone. There was no leadership. Remember, the monarchy was also wiped out uh, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And so there were no uh, appointed leaders and that is how and why the priestly system, the, the priestly class, uh, became the leaders out of necessity. And it was during the, this particular time of uh, incarceration, you might say, in Babylon, and the early days of the return, that the uh, figure of the high priest, began to take over and become the dominant leader. All right? But that was a gradual thing. The people had to kind of rethink their whole idea of what Judaism was and where they should go and how they should head towards and what should they head towards. Okay? Uh, Because everything was kind of uh, turned upside down for them. Uh, the one thing that they did have was a determination to follow the law. The laws that were developed in the book of Deuteronomy, at least the portion that was taken to Babylon in the first place, which was chapter uh, 12 through 29. Um, That's the main part of that particular book. The other part, chapters 1 through 11, were added later, as well as many other parts were added later on. And when I say later, I'm talking about uh, the early part of the 5th century B.C., uh, primarily by the priest Ezra. No. They were under the domination of the Persians for a short while. And then, of course, under the Greeks who conquered the Persians, and then later under the Romans who conquered the Greeks. So, that's a good point though, Chet. 
it took a while, but they began to realize that never again would they be a sovereign nation. You know, they were for a while, uh, because in some ways it was the nations around them kind of left them alone, but then since the time of King David, they became a sovereign nation recognized as, uh, or recognized by the other nations around them. But then through the monarchy and its degradation, uh, that's what got them into Babylon in the first place. And Assyria, of course, uh, wiped the northern part out. But when they came back, they began to realize that never again would they be under their own control, a sovereign nation. And so gradually, not right away, but gradually, they began to look for a new promised land. And that is how they, you know, they would pray for a new promised land. Remember, not all of the Jewish people were the great sinners that this kind of reports them to be. There were a lot of good people there. And they were the ones who became the priestly class, and they were the ones who brought Deuteronomy into Babylon and then back again. But gradually they began to look for a new promised land and then connect it with God in heaven. Remember, they always knew that God was up in heaven. But the idea of mankind returning to heaven, returning to God at some point in time, was never really thought about up until now. Up until this time after the return from Babylon. That is when they were searching for a new promised land and began to realize through reading scripture that it was God who was drawing them back. And that gradually became the idea of heaven meaning a place where mankind and God would be reunited. All right? And then it was after that that they began to think about, well, who was going to lead us? Who was going to get us into this new promised land? Okay? It was Moses that originally brought them into the original promised land, Israel. Now, who is going to be the new Moses? Unfortunately, they began to apply that to somebody like King David, who was sort of a knight on shining armor, and a knight on a white horse in shining armor, who was going to get rid of the Romans. And that was going to be their heaven, because then they would be uh, their own idea, their own sovereign nation. Okay? The idea of heaven was never totally accepted by everybody, and even today is not accepted by everybody in the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting in a way that uh, Judaism, as I've said many, many times, and I've given you um, a copy of the four major periods of Jewish history, changed, Jewish Judaism changed uh, significantly about every 500 years through major events, not through their willingness or wanting it, 
but through major events from the time of Abraham. Right? From the time of Abraham to the time of Moses, Judaism was just kind of not really even uh, an organized uh, faith or religion. It was just a group of people who believed in the one true God. And I'm sim- uh, simplifying this, of course. Uh, from the time of Moses uh, to the time of King David, which is another 500-year period, uh, leadership was through the judges, um, primarily, uh, that God had appointed over various of his uh, of the twelve tribes of Jacob, etc., etc. Uh, the monarchy started at the time of King Saul and King David, and was carried on then through uh, Solomon, uh, and then Solomon's son, who was a weakling, uh, didn't want to bother with the northern part, so he divided uh, the kingdom again. Uh, in half, he took the southern part and gave the other one to Jeroboam. You get Rohobem and Jeroboam kind of mixed up, but that was their names. Uh, then that was another 500 years to the Babylonian captivity, and then it changed again after the Babylonian captivity, and that's what we're talking about now. Okay, but interestingly enough. Even after Christ, within 500 years, it changed again with the development of of the Talmud. The Talmud is a combination of commentary and instruction on the 613 commandments that are in the Old Testament. They take them and mince them down to a great deal more. The words, the number 613, uh, nobody quite knows exactly where that came from. Uh, because you can't really go through and start numbering them down, you know, 349 or 450 to 612 and 13. There is no such uh, way to do that. Uh, the number 613, which they all recognize, but they can't explain where it came from. Uh, the Talmud, uh, the Mishnah, the Jumara, which are parts of each other, uh, became the leading book. Uh, but that was not developed until about the 12th century. All right, let's go on. Chapter 54. Raise a cry, you barren one, who never bore a child. He's actually going back and talking to the Jewish people about the early days, the ancient days of Judaism. And in this case, the barren one refers to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Break forth in jubilant song, you who have never been in labor. Although she was, but uh, this is sort of... uh, sort of uh, a mystical way of looking at the early days. Okay? For more numerous are the children of the deserted wife than the children of her 
who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the space of your tent. Spread out your tent cloths unsparingly. Lengthen your robes and make firm your pegs. For you shall spread abroad to the right and the left. Your descendants shall dis, uh, dispose. Shows, <laughs> sorry, thank you. There's, your descendants shall dispossess the nations and shall people the deserted cities. He's talking about the prosperity that will again return to Jerusalem. That they will have many children and that they will spread out. And they did. Okay. Do not fear. You shall not be put to shame. Do not be discouraged. You shall not be disgraced. For the shame of your youth you shall forget. The reproach of your widowhood no longer remembered. For your husband is your maker. This is this whole idea of God being not only the father, but the husband. The husband of Judaism. And though he deserted them for a short time, that is the 40 or 50 years while in Babylon, while he deserted them for a short time, he now repents and is repents. Well, God shouldn't have to repent. But he's telling them in a way that they will understand that he will take them back and be good to them from now on. That's the whole idea of return to me with your whole heart. For your husband is your maker. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Redeemer in this case is not Christ. Uh, It is God the Father. The Holy One of Israel called God of all the earth. The Lord calls you back like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. A wife married in youth and then cast off, says the Lord. Well, he cast her off because of her own waywardness. This is Judaism, again, being looked upon as the wife. Uh, The prophet Hosea does virtually the whole book with the analogy of God being the husband, the faithful husband, and the wife being uh, the sinful, wayward uh, wife, Jerusalem. Do not fear, you shall not be put to shame. Do not be discouraged, you shall not be disgraced. For the shame of your youth, Shall, you shall forget and reproach of your widowhood no longer remembered. For your husband is your maker. The host, the Lord of, I, I know I'm re, repeating myself, but that's all right. It's good stuff. <laughs> the Lord of hosts is his name, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, called God of all the earth. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord calls you back like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. A wife married in youth and then cast off, says your God. 
For a brief moment I abandoned you. Brief moment, 50 years. Hmm. But with great tenderness I will take you back in an outburst of wrath for a moment. Excuse me. I, for a moment I hid my face from you, <clears throat> but with enduring love I will take pity on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is for me like the days of Noah, as I swore then that the waters of Noah shall never again flood the earth. Hmm. So I have sworn now not to be angry with you or to rebuke you. Though the mountains fall away and the hills be shaken, my love shall never fall away from you, nor my covenant of peace be shaken, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Now, you might say, well, if that's true, never sounds like forever, does it not? But in this case, it is with conditions. And the covenant had conditions and consequences if those conditions were not kept. And, of course, we know that they were not kept. And so we can say that God is repeating the conditions of the covenant here, uh, but the consequences remain the same. That if they do not keep the covenant, as originally made with Abraham and renewed down through the ages, that there will be consequences. And, of course, that covenant was finally withdrawn by God forever and ever in 40 A.D. O afflicted one, storm-battered and unconsoled, I lay your pavements in carnelians, your foundations in sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. Those same words are used in the book of Revelation uh, pretty much in the same way to recognize uh, what could happen if faithfulness continues. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Great shall be the peace of your children. In justice shall you be established. Far from oppression you shall not fear. From destruction it cannot come near. If there be an attack, it is not my doing. Whoever attacks shall fall before you. And that's true. God did protect the Jewish people for many years. But as time went on, they returned to their own ways of selfishness uh, and oppression against the poor, the widows, the orphans, etc. Uh, and by the time of Christ, uh, they were back to the same conditions that got them to Babylon in the first place. See, I have created the smith who blows on the burning coals and forges weapons as his work. It is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. Every weapon fashioned against you shall fail. Every tongue that brings you to trial 
you shall prove. This is the lot of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication from me and the voice of the Lord, oracle of the Lord, as it says here. Okay. All of this is a great and glorious promise to God if the people renew their allegiance to the covenant that God first made with them. All right. Unfortunately, they didn't. It's like saying, all right, Lord, we're going to do all that you say, but we're going to do it our way. You know, which is not his way. An invitation to grace. This is sort of an invitation back to the idea of Zion and Zionism being the comfortable homeland. Okay. All you who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come, buy grain and eat. Come, buy grain without money, wine and milk without cost. Why spend your money for what is not bread, for your wages for what does not satisfy? Only listening to me and you shall eat well. You shall delight in rich fare. Pay attention and come to me. Listen that you may have life. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Or you might put that or change that to renew. I will renew with you the everlasting covenant. The steadfast loyalty promised to David. See, this is a renewal of the original covenant. Again. As I made him a witness to peoples, a leader and commander of peoples. Now, <clears throat> peoples, plural, okay? That is the way they looked at it. The people of their own country is generally singular. When they say peoples, they're talking about the nations surrounding them. Okay. So shall you summon a nation you knew not, and the nation they, <coughs> that they, I'm sorry, that knew not, uh, I'm getting lost here. So shall you summon a nation you knew not, and a nation that knew you not shall run to you because of the Lord your God by the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and sinners their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord to find mercy, to our God who is generous and forgiving. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the oracle of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Yet, just as from the heavens the rain and snow come down and do not return there till they have watered the earth, making it fertile and fruitful. <coughs> Uh, 
giving seed to the one who sows and bread to the one who eats. So my words, so shall my words be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall do what pleases me, achieving the end for which I sent it. In other words, God's plan will be accomplished whether they join in or not. Yes, in joy you shall go forth, in peace you shall be brought home. Mountains and hills shall break out in song before you. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands in place of the thorn bush. The cypress shall grow instead of nettles. Myrtle. The myrtle shall be, this shall be the Lord's renown as an everlasting sign that shall not fail. This whole chapter 55 really is a plea to the Jewish people to return with trust and with hope. But if they do not return also to the terms and conditions of the covenant, then these things will not be given to them. And again, they have said, okay, Lord, we'll do it, but we'll do it our way. Not your way, but our way. And God is saying here, your ways are not my ways. And they're, they're saying, in effect, that's okay. We'll do it our way. Which is unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to wake up. To examine our lives. Our lifestyle. And what are our goals? And who is our God? Help us primarily to think about the way we worship you. Is it with intention or is it with the idea that we are just following or fulfilling an obligation? Help us, Lord, to make the words of our prayers be true sentiments of our heart and not the other way around. So give us the strength, the courage to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you want us to hear and to follow you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.